Hey there, get ready to listen to the affairs of the black diasporas. You are about to learn, live, and enjoy life lessons we black people have experienced throughout history. Welcome to Unlocking Our Voices, where we seek to unify the black diasporas, eradicate inequality, racial profiling, and the general lack of respect. Let's open our mouths and minds with your host, Greg Fuller. Hello to all my beautiful, melanated black people. Welcome to Unlocking Our Voices. It is another Monday here in the United States, and it is a holiday here. I don't even know which holiday it is, whether it's Memorial Day or... I, I don't even know, to be honest. <laughs> to be honest with you, I forgot what holiday it is today. But all I know, it is Monday, and it's a holiday. I think it's Labor Day. I'm not sure. But regardless of the holiday and what day it is, Monday, you know, we should be, ans- you know, we should be thankful. Thankful as black people because our ancestors have given us another gift of life because we were able to rise this morning and to see the blessing of just sun on the rise once again. You know, just giving you a line from Bob Marley's song, you know, bless my eyes this morning, just sun is on the rise once again. But, you know, I am not really a singer. <laughs> you know, I, am, I was, you know, I'm an historian, so I'm going to stick to the script of being an historian and not trying to sing. And, you know, but on today's Monday, there is much um, for us to discuss today. Um, and, you know, I want to focus on white supremacy, or should I say European supremacy, because I don't want to say white supremacy and, you know, thinking of white supremacy, we just focusing on the United States. But white supremacy is a global issue in the Americas, in Africa, all over the world, where the black man culture resides, whether it's in India, in Bangladesh, in Australia, in the Caribbean, in Africa, or in, uh, or in Latin America. European supremacy has convinced the majority of those black people that they are inferior They have convinced the world that the minority culture of the world is good and that the majority dark-skinned people of the world is bad. But when you look at the history of the world in the past 500 years, it is evident that those who have committed the most atrocities on humanity has been the minority culture of the world, European. Moreover, they have convinced the world that white skin is good and that dark skin is bad. They have even convinced those people within their own ethnicity and cultures that it's better to be lighter than opposed to being darker skin. White supremacy has affected the consciousness of the dominant culture and the dark-skinned people of the world to inwardly hate themselves to the point that they have forgotten their history of how majestic and precious 
the black skin is. In the process of doing so, however, the minority culture of the world, Europeans, have forfeit their essence of what it means to be part of the human family tree, to have compassion, reasoning, empathy, and brotherly love. In the name of God, gold and glory, they have wreaked havoc on the earth and their fellow man, starting from about 1492 in the Western Hemisphere, when the conquistadors came to the shores of the Americas, followed by the Portuguese in the 16th and 17th century in Southeast Asia. In this episode, let's connect white supremacists, better known as European supremacy, and how it plays out in the Americas and in Africa. For those who are new to our program, Unlocking Our Voices was created to focus specifically on the black diasporas, the culture, the people, their stories, their issues, injustices, and the varying measures used to prolong our oppression and marginalization. Meanwhile, racism is not only limited to the United States. We go to Peru, where our correspondent Rael Mora tells us that over 40% of citizens with darker skin there have reported racial discrimination. Here's his report. Like many Peruvians, Maria Gallardo has experienced racial prejudice, but often perpetrators try to disguise it as something else. One time, however, it was plain as a day. At that occasion, a lighter-skinned woman demanded she switches bus seats so she could avoid the heat of sunlight. The lady was haughty. I won't move. I told the lady, if you want, sit there or go look for another seat. And the woman got angry and told me, since they freed the slaves, they think so much of themselves. Gallardo's anecdote helps to portray what several recent studies are showing about racism in the country. Such results demonstrate that in Peru, racial features influence a person's opportunity to study, work, and earn an income more than in the rest of Latin America. This influences when you have a work interview where they demand the so-called good looks, which is a euphemism to refer to the preference for a person that has certain racial features and not others. And it causes much insecurity and damages self-esteem. Portocarrero explains that the problem of racism is rooted in the Peruvian colonial history, but great advances have been made in the last 20 years through independent campaigns. However, now... Great advances has been made. It's interesting. I was in Peru a few months ago, and you know it was the first time traveling to Peru. And when I went to Peru and in the old district in Lima, Peru, when you go into the old district, you can see the African culture there. You can see the African architect. There, in the old Peru, in Lima, Peru. And when you look at Peru's history, when Francisco Pizarro left Panama in 1524, 
where he had resided and to reach the Peruvian coast. He too, like all the other Europeans that ventured into the Americas, they embraced the ideology of white supremacy in their search for gold and honored glory for themselves or their nation. It was their lack of compassion, reasoning, empathy, and brotherly love that enabled them to commit the wholesale slaughter of indigenous people and the enslavement of another, the Africans. Now, when we look at five centuries later, Afro-Peruvians live primarily in the southern coastal region in the cities such as the Inca and the Nazca and have contributed a blend of religion, language, and cuisine to Peru's cultural heritage. But we see discrimination is high in Peru. The white Peruvians have picked up where their conquerors have left off. Afro-Peruvians do not hold leadership positions in the government, in businesses, or the military. And it is a common criticism that black people face widespread racism and are discriminated against in the job application process. And they are often relegated to low-paid position. All over the world where you go, you see this pattern in terms of how the darker your skin is, how you're treated. When we look at India, the black Indians, their culture, yes, is Hindu, Hinduism. But these are black people, dark-skinned people. And when you look at India, which has a population of, of 1.4 billion people, the majority of them darker skin. The invention of the caste system, which was not introduced by the darker skinned Dravidians, but really was introduced by the Indo-Europeans that came into India starting from around 15 BC. And they invent this concept, this religion, Hinduism. And you find that the darker skinned people Black people are on the lower social ladder and status in India to the point that when these black people migrate and see other black people, they don't associate with them. They think that they are not black people like them. No, I am Indian. Yes, you are Indian in terms of your ethnicity and your culture. But your skin is dark, your skin is black. You are a black Indian, just like you have black Jamaican, just like you have black Americans, just like you have black Africans, just like you have black Peruvians, black Colombians, and so forth and so on. But white supremacists have convinced the majority people of their diversity, the darker of the, the dark skin of their diversity, to think that there's something else trying to negate their blackness because they don't want to be identified as being black. When you look at the country of Peru, 
Afro-Peruvian population is estimated to be around 7 million out of a population that is 31 million. It is probably though higher because the last census that was conducted in Peru for Afro-Peruvians was not was in the 1940 1940 that they did a count of the numbers of black people Afro-Peruvians. We sometimes have this unconsciousness of hating the blackness of who we are because what we see is that the media is controlled by the Europeans. The media perpetuates and promotes negative stereotype of black people. No matter what country they are in, the media facilitate and the culture of white, sup- white supremacists facilitate the negative behavior of black people. When all cultures and all people have negative practice and behaviors, but yet still our culture, black culture, black people, is what is portrayed in the media as being bad. And so it creates this image. It is important that we black people in the United States understand that we cannot separate our struggles in the United States from those in Latin America. Black people, we cannot separate our struggles from those in Africa. Black people. And even though this culture, white supremacists, is working night and day to do that. Remember that this is the reasons on this is the reason unlocking our voices was created. Also, it's aimed to connect peoples of the black diasporas in new and exciting ways, equipping them with the tools, the platform, and access that allows them to trace their history and also point to how an understanding of the past influence the very present that they live in, ultimately impressing upon them that they hold the keys to shaping their own future by way of dialogue and working together by means of face-to-face or virtual constructive conversation. We seek to evolve and enhance ourselves spiritually, mentally, socially, politically, and economically. As Americans mark the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, yesterday's fatal shooting of three black people by a white gunman in Jacksonville, Florida, is a brutal reminder that race-based hate is still among us. Authorities say the shooter, who turned one of his guns on himself, left behind writings detailing his ideology of hate. And the FBI says it's investigating the rampage as a hate crime. Late today, President Biden said in a statement, hate must have no safe harbor. Silence is complicity, and we must not remain silent. So when you look at the United States, racial terrorism and intimidation of black people in the United States can be traced back before the founding of the nation. Regrettable racial violence has been a distinct part of America's history since 
1660. While that violence has impact almost every ethnic and racial group in the United States, it has had a particularly horrific effect on black people's lives in the United States. However, racial terrorism became characteristics of Southern democracy during the 1870s and prompt little action from the federal government. But it wasn't until after World War I we see black people begin to come back to the United States and begin to make their voices be heard because they went to Europe to fight to liberate Europeans, right? To liberate Europeans and to free Europeans from um, Nazi Germany and, you know, World War I and World War II. And so when black people came back in the United States, they wanted freedom. Almost a century later in Mississippi, we see the murder of a 14-year-old boy by the name of Emmett Till in 1955 brought the nationwide attention to the racial violence and injustice prevalent, prevalent not only in Mississippi, but in the United States as a whole. When we look at Emmett Till's killing was one of countless atrocities and lynching of black people in the North, the South, the West, and East of the United States. The list in list, countless amount of black people being killed. When you look at white terrorism in the United States, it goes back for centuries. We see that the Robert Charles riot in New Orleans in 1900, New York City race riot in 1900, Atlanta race riot in 1906, Springs, Springfield, Illinois race riot in 1908, East St. Louis race riot in 1917, Chester, Pennsylvania race riot in 1917, Hutt, um, Texas, um, Houston, Texas, mutiny race riot in 1917, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania race riot 1918, Charleston, South Carolina race riot 1919, Longview race riot 1919, Washington, D.C. race riot 1919, Chicago race riot 1919, Knoxville race riot, 1919, Tulsa race riot, massacre, 1921, Rosewood massacre, 1923, Harlem race riot, 1935, Detroit race riot, 1943, Columbia race riot, 1946, Peekskill race riot, 1949, and the list goes on and on and on in which black people has been the victim of white supremacist terrorism. Black people have been the victim of white mob. Black people, 
just because they want to live like human beings, just because they want to strive, just because they want upward mobility like any other human beings. They have been attacked. And it's not just in the Americas. When we look at black people progression and rise, we see it in Europe. When we look at black people progression and rise, we see it in Latin America. When we see black people progression and rise, we see white minority react with violence, whether it be in Africa, whether it be in Asia, whether it be in the Caribbean, whether it be in Latin America. White supremacists continues to inflict violence on black people. The lack of compassion, the lack of humanity has been something that has always been displayed by the minority culture of the world. When we look today, white supremacists, racial terrorism has disguised itself in mass incarceration, mentally disturbed white individuals that only kill black people, and systematic institution that intentionally target black people in preventing their rise in this socioeconomic order. When you go in any predominantly black neighborhood, you find that the community is facing financial problems. You find that the community is facing tremendous economic situation. All over the world you go, black people are facing problems. But we stand and we rise. No matter the obstacles that we face, black people is always, always rising. This upland skyline is Panama City. 40 miles away, at the other end of the canal, is the city of Colón. The horizons offer a sharply different view. Rotting tenement buildings and other squalor. The structure is a neighborhood's bathroom. Showers? Well, they don't exist here. Despite an economy that's now growing at a clip of 10% a year, the World Bank says Panama has one of the widest disparities of wealth in Latin America. The inequality and poverty in Panama has two fundamental colors, the indigenous population and the black population in the country. The city of Colón is predominantly black. The youth unemployment rate here is above 30%. And when you look at back to Latin America again, when we look at in the case of Panama, the idea that the country is a melting pot has crystallized through the ages as it has in Brazil, pride in itself as a racial democracy. The assumption behind it as it is in Brazil, is that there is no longer possible to easily um, differentiate using iron markers that were once effective. 
However, in the years following the 1989 of the United States invasion of Panama, there has been a an noticeable increase in racial discrimination, covert racist policy, and social disparity in Panama that was the consequence of the defeat of the popular forces. The new embracements of neocolonialism by wide sector of the political and economic class and the disarray of the black movement during the period of the U.S. invasion and occupation in Panama, Afro-Peruvians groups and popular organization had to adjust to the post-invasion political and economic environment dominated by the so-called transition of democracy. Now, when we look at this transition of European white supremacy, or as I like to call it, you know, white um, European supremacy to democracy. When we look at democracy in predominantly black country or countries that have a high dark-skinned population, democracy has never worked for them. Because when we look at Europeans' view of democracy, they infiltrate black countries, whether it put in IMF or World Bank leaders in these government. And these leaders will set the policy that shape that country, which eventually devastate that country. When you look at in Africa, it is the same thing. Africans have gained their independence since the late 1950s, and they've been getting aid from Europeans, but yet still they can't stand on their own feet. When you look at in, Latin, um, in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, my own country, a country that we see Europeans are buying a property all over that island, but yet still the black Jamaicans can't benefit by living in their own country. White supremacists is very clever, and white supremacists have ways and means of how to limit the progress of black people, whether they are in the United States, whether they are in Latin America, whether they are in the Caribbean. Because if we hold to the standards and values of white culture or white supremacists, black people, no matter what country they are in, will never advance. And it is evident when we look at the African continent today. It is evident when we look at black people in the United States, it is evidence when we look at black people in Cuba. It is evidence when we look at black people in Panama. Whenever they try to subscribe or say they're going to live, try to follow the footstep of European ideas of democracy, it never works. And when they break free from those models, we see white supremacists respond with sanction. But sanction can only last for so long, my friend. And so when you look at Panama, it is, it is essential 
that we reflect on how the social and cultural construction of race in Panama has developed a series of underlying racial labels that obscure the discrimination, oppression, and racism that Afro-Panamanian people have suffered throughout the national history of that country. And when you go to the city of Cologne, black people in Cologne live some of the poorest condition in that nation's history. Racism is present in Panama and throughout much of Latin America. Yes, some can argue that classism trumps racism, but when you look at who are the people who are on the lower social status of society, it is always the darker-skinned people, blacks and indigenous. And so we have to look that it is not just a social class issue, but it's a racial class issue. And we see ever since Europeans, or Latin America, I should say, ever since Latin America gained their independence, they have tried their best to rid themselves of the indigenous culture and the African culture because they felt that progress, for them to have progress, they had to embrace European lifestyle, European ways, European culture, instead of looking to the indigenous culture, instead of looking to the African culture, they look to the culture that has enslaved them and that has oppressed them for centuries. Europe is a garden. We have built a garden. Everything works. It's the best combination of uh, political freedom, economic prosperity, and social cohesion that the humankind has been able to build. There's three things together. And here Bruges is maybe the, the good representation of beautiful things, intellectual life, well-being. The, the rest of the world, and you know very well, Federica, is not exactly a garden. The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, is a jungle. And the jungle could invade the garden. And the gardeners should take care of it. Europe is a garden, right? And the west of the world is a jungle. That was the EU foreign policy chief who made that statement several months ago. But how did Europe became a garden, right? How did Europe became a garden? They language in the dark age for almost a thousand years. But we see in the late 18th century, revolution in Europe and in America. And when we look at these revolutions, they transform the political orders in France and in the United States. With the coming of the Industrial Revolution in Britain and modernized farming, the processing of raw material and manufacturing goods. Later, such industrialization would spread to Europe and the United States. Economic progress came at the cost of rapid urbanization and social problems. 
But this transformation of European supremacy was put into overdrive with huge demand for raw materials that led to the colonization of African resources. And it is that exploitation of African resources that will help create a paradise, a garden in Europe. White supremacists have denied their atrocities on the rest of the world. When you look at in the Congo, well, not just the Congo, but when you look at in Africa, they have the more resources, natural resources than any place in the world. But African nations cannot benefit from the resources that they have because European white supremacists have implemented policy through neocolonialism. And so it is not surprising that African nations that once were colonized by Spain, well, not even Spain, I should say, but by France, African nations are rising in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Ghana, in Gabon, and the list goes on. African nations are questioning themselves and say, why should we be subjects? When we are free people, and this disturbed the West, this disturbed France, this disturbed Britain, this disturbed the United States of America. We see in 1884, Africa was divided by the infamous Berlin Conference, which spanned almost four months of deliberation from November the 15th, 1884 to February 26th, 1885, in which Europeans discuss amongst themselves which, which European nations will get resources of Africa. And we see from 1884 to 1885, Europe has plundered, raped, colonized, victimized, brutalized the African continent. The most brutal of them is France and Britain. Imperialism from there, though, took a new form of political control that created economic dependency even when, Europe, even when Africans gained their independence from Europe. France and Britain saw imperialism as a way of carrying out their responsibility to civilize non-European societies. When you look at in Haiti today, Haiti, a country that has gained its independence in the Western Hemisphere, Europe and America has done everything in its power to make sure that Haiti does not rise, to make sure that Haiti does not be a symbol of hope for black people all over the world. When Haiti gained its independence, the French put these stipulations on, on, on Haiti and African nation. Even though they have gained their independence, they only gained their independence in name but not in reality.
we see the wealth and the resource of African nations have been extracted by France. The wealth and the resource of Haiti has been extracted by France. So colonialism has taken on a new form, right? And it is no surprising that we see Gabon, Niger, Mali, Sudan, Burkina Faso, and so forth have had coup d'etat because they are tired. They are tired of the exploitation. They are tired of their people not benefiting. They are tired of government that are in power that is facilitating the bid of France, that is facilitating the work of Britain, that is facilitating the works of the United States because they have seen the history of neocolonialism in their country. This is a banknote from Senegal. Here is another from Congo. They look nothing like each other, yet they are part of the same scheme. A scheme that pegs both currencies to the euro, a rate determined by the French treasury. The issue at stake is the apex of French policymaking, the CFA franc. Using it, France controls the monetary sovereignty of 14 nations, making up nearly 200 million people. These countries include Benin, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Chad, Congo, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Guinea-Bissau, Ivory Coast, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Togo, and the Central African Republic. And while these nations have a seat at the United Nations and wave their independent flags, it is only the face of imperialism that has changed. The conduct of business has largely remained the same. The big difference is that imperialism used to be spread through tanks. Nowadays, it comes through banks. Yes, neocolonialism has a new face in Africa. Neocolonialism has a face in which the EU, neocolonialism in Africa has a new face in the World Bank. Neocolonialism in Africa has a new face in the IMF. And so they control African resources and African politics only to create to create a garden in Europe. We see the, the act of white supremacists in the most beautiful of ways expressing itself in the EU. When you look at white supremacists, white supremacists have, they don't care about the humanity of black people, whether they are in the United States, whether they are in Latin America, whether they are in the Caribbean, whether they are in Africa, because white supremacists do not see black people as human beings. And because they fail to see black people as human beings, they can exploit and treat the dominant culture of the world black people in the worst condition as they please. And so when you look at in the Congo, you have black people digging out the resources with their bare hands. When you look at white supremacy, it has black people in Niger, Gabon, and Niger, and Nigeria, and in Ghana, 
to welcome European military bases and American bases that in many ways are funding terrorism in those countries. And we see those nations cannot rise to their full potential. Kwame Nkuma warns us about neocolonialism and white supremacists. Our enemies are many. And they stand ready to pounce upon and exploit our every weakness. They play upon our vanities and flatter us in every kind of way. They tell us that this particular person or that particular country has greater or more favorable potentialities than the other. They do not tell us that we should unite, that we are all as good as we are able to make ourselves once we are free. We want, therefore, to develop our own community and an African personality. Others may feel that they have evolved the very best way of life, but we are not bound, like slavish imitators, to accept it as our mold. We find the methods used by others are suitable to our social environment, we shall adopt or adapt them. If we find them unsuitable, we shall reject them. Fighters for African freedoms, I appeal to you in the sacred name of Mother Africa to leave this conference resolved to rededicate yourselves to the task of forming among the political parties in your respective countries a broad united front based upon one common fundamental aim and object, the speedy liberation of your territories. Liberation of your territories. That was Kwame Nkuma in the All African People's Conference in 1958. Marcus Garvey also urged black people to unite. We see a movement going on throughout the world today where black people are are waking up in Latin America. Black people are waking up in Africa. Black people are waking up in the United States. Black people are waking up in the Caribbean. Even though you don't see the conscious awakeness of black people on the mainstream medias, it doesn't mean it's not happening. So do not be despair because the spirit of our ancestors is once again agitating and moving in direction that is consciously affecting modern black people today. So I hope this episode has helped you learn more about the connection of European supremacists in the Americas and Africa and how it has affected black people on both continents. The lack of compassion, reasoning, empathy, and brotherly love from the minority culture, Europeans, 
should be one of the driving forces that expedite our unity as black people. Let's start a new chapter of partnership, fellowship, brother, brotherhood, sisterhood, spiritual strength, racial unification for political power, economic might, and a united Africa and a united diaspora of black people. For as we look back in the past and today's disunity and confusion has been our greatest weakness. Thanks for tuning in and I encourage you to check out our social media, whether it be in Instagram, whether it be on um, Facebook or in, in TikTok because we have some great content on those platforms. Stay connected for a next episode where we dive deep into another fascinating topic that will help unlocking our voices as the Black diaspora. Thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful week. If you enjoyed Unlocking Our Voices, recommend us and let's grow our conversations, community, and power. Stay tuned for our next episode and don't forget to sign up for our notifications. Find us on social media at Unlocking Our Voices and on our website at www.unlockingourvoices.com. Thanks for listening and helping to amplify the voices of the Black diasporas.